Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians 4, uh, we will be looking at verse 25 as we continue in our walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. The title of our sermon this morning is Christian Living Part 2. And if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go listen to that introduction to this section of verses 25 through 32. This morning we begin uh, walking uh, through these verses more specifically now. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are lying, truth, and neighbor. <coughs> in 2009, there was a movie that came out called The Invention of Lying. And I am not endorsing that. I am not recommending it. However, it's about a society where lying does not exist. Every character only knows how to be honest about everything, all truth, all the time, no matter what. So they say what they think, the answer to every question is completely truthful, and in return, they believe everything they hear without question. Can you imagine what that would be like? How are you doing? Everyone's favorite question to lie about well, I'm irritated that you're talking to me. I'm rather depressed about my life, and I just want to eat a jar of peanut butter and binge on Netflix all night. How are you? Can you even imagine what social media would be like? The comments that would be under your baby's picture? Isn't he so cute? You don't want to know the answer. In this movie, the main character discovers how to lie. And so he uses lies for his own personal gain because everyone believes what he says. And within days, he's rich, he's famous, he's interacting with the woman of his dreams. And since nobody knows what a lie is, he goes on living happily in a world of his own making. The whole thing is a comedy, but it really reveals a frightening reality about all of us. How well do we really know each other? How well do we really know our friends, our family members, our own spouses, or even ourselves? All of us are acquainted with lies. We've all told them, we've all heard them, we've all been fooled by them, we've all fooled others with them, we've all seen through them, and we've all believed that we tell lies less than we actually do. But we also know that whether it's a lie that's intended to embellish a person's abilities or their social status or a lie to, uh, to cover up some kind of uh, deception or told for fear that the truth may cause more pain, uh, the consequences more often than not are devastating. And we see this in our own lives. We see this on the national stage, especially now, 24-hour news coverage, paparazzi following celebrities wherever they go. There's this never-ending push to know what's going on in people's lives, and there are a lot of lies. We've been witness to cheating in relationships or exams or in sports. And almost always, if someone is caught, the fallout is betrayal and heartbreak and divorce and removal from school or a job or kicked off of a team, all stemming from the conclusion that it was important to that person in that time to lie. 
Even in recent history, we've seen two of our presidents in the United States caught and called out for their lies. One resigned from office because of it. The other defiantly insisting that his perjury was not an offense worthy of dismissal. So let's face it, we've grown used to lies and lying. We hear lies from politicians, from the highest office in the land, all the way down to our children. We hear them from athletes and news anchors in the public sphere, our coworkers, our customers, on a regular basis. In fact, I think in recent years it's safe to say that lying has become more and more socially acceptable as a means to success. A Time Magazine survey of 3 million job applicants indicated that nearly 50% of American resumes they admitted contained at least one falsehood. And of course, social media hasn't helped in our quest to lie because people want to do whatever they can to portray a life that they want to live and they want people to think they have instead of the life they actually live. And in so many different circumstances, we are tempted to lie, to protect our reputation, to keep from hurting someone else's feelings, to make our credentials more impressive, to appear that we are more accomplished. Lying is mainstream. And many would even attempt to argue that oftentimes it's necessary. But what does God say about lying? We have the Bible's response We're going to look at that in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Read that with me. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And we're looking at Paul's exhortations here concerning Christian living. Last week we summarized these verses 25 through 32, explaining that each of the commands that comes uh, here are coming out of verses 17 through 24. And the principle that Paul gave to us of the old self being put to death and the new self living in Christ, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So Paul uses that word, put off here in verse 25. And he's saying, since you've put that off, speak truthfully with your neighbor. And back in verse 22, he said, to put off your old self belong to your, that belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What is deceit? Deceit is lying. And he's saying, so since you have put that off, now Walk forward in truth. So falsehood, lying, is a specific characteristic of the old self, of the old man, which is clear from Paul's statement in verse 22, referring to deceitful desires, desires that are built upon a lie. Before we get too far, I want to point out that Paul is simply emphasizing the law of God, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it's the ninth commandment. And it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I love the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the ninth commandment. Here's what it says. God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, 
I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses. And they would call down my God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak it candidly and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. So that helps us to see what's forbidden in the ninth commandment. Namely, any false witness, which includes lying of every kind, twisting words, gossiping slander, condemning others without just cause. We also have the positive aspect of this commandment, which is that I am to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. I should be seeking the welfare of my neighbor in protecting their name. And that sounds good. In fact, I think you'd probably be hard-pressed to find anyone who disagrees, at least in word, with the ninth commandment. But even if they won't admit it, everyone knows that lying is wrong because God's law is written on their heart. Nevertheless, it is a command that is so widely accepted as important and reasonable, yet is ignored on a daily basis. Same writer from Time Magazine wrote, the injunction against bearing false witness, branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked ambivalent, conflicting emotions. On the one hand, nearly everybody condemns lying. On the other, nearly everyone does it every day. And then he adds this biting rebuke. How many of the Ten Commandments can be broken so easily and with so little risk of detection over the telephone? At the most foundational level, God gave the Ninth Commandment that we would know what is true about the desires of our hearts in deceiving one another. Now, the ninth commandment, first and foremost, is given to govern legal testimony that a witness gives in a public trial before a jury. In other words, don't be a witness who gives false testimony against anyone in the court of law. And in the ancient world, that was incredibly important because they didn't have uh, DNA and all this kind of evidence. Uh, CSI didn't show up and the crime scene to figure things out. Um, people were actually guilty until proven innocent in the ancient court systems. Often the evidence was presented by the accuser against the accused, and if the court thought the case was strong enough, the accused wasn't even given a chance to defend themselves. Nearly everything in court was presented based on the testimony of a witness. So it was frequently one man's word against another's. And remember also that crimes in the ancient world most often were punished not by a few days or weeks or months in court or a fine they had to pay. So often they were punishable by death. So very literally, the truthfulness of a witness could be determining uh, whether or not someone lives or dies. Now in Israel, things were a bit different under God's rule. When a member of the covenant community was placed on trial, he appeared before a jury of elders. And there had to be more than one witness, preferably up to three or more. And this was particularly important when it, when it, re when it related to an offense that was punishable by death. No man could be put to death by a single witness. So we recognize in the civil law of God how the, the moral law, not bearing false witness, was to be worked out. 
specifically in that way in the court system and as our role in bringing justice. God's people were not allowed to bring false accusations against one another. But the ninth commandment doesn't stop in the courtroom. It forbids every form of falsehood, which necessitates examining every single word that comes out of our mouths. I hope you see the connection between verse 25 and the ninth commandment. And I want to point this out because it's important for us to remember the use of the law in the Christian life. Once we are made new creations in Christ, if I'm going to live the Christian life in a way that's pleasing, in a way that's obedient to God and for my good, I'm going to be looking at God's law to direct and to guide me. Samuel Bolton wrote, the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. So I hope you remember the very important things that we talked about last week. The only way that we can do anything that Paul is laying down in the remainder of the book of Ephesians is that we are first made new creations in Christ. I must be born again if I'm going to be obedient to God's law. Apart from being justified, apart from having new life in Christ, apart from being born again, I cannot obey what is being commanded. So I need a new heart before I can have any kind of new behavior. But once I have the new heart, I now need to look to God's law to know what he requires of me if I'm to be faithful. And Jesus himself reminds us, if you love me, you will do my commandments. You will obey what I've commanded you. So Paul brings us back to the law of God as a rule of life for God's people. There's a lot packed into this verse here, so I want to look at three principles of Christian living, all related to truth-telling. And the first is this, living as a Christian means we put away all falsehood. You see that right out of the gate in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Now notice, Paul writes this in the past tense. It's something that has already happened. And implied in that, once again... Uh, what we were just thinking about, we must be born again. If we are, the old self has been put off. And when the old self is put off, we need to put on the new self. But in this instance, the old self has been put off. He has been put to death. He is no longer living. So there's a big assumption in Paul even using past tense here. Namely, that this is something that happens when you become a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, he's implying that the rest of what he says is not even possible in your life. Now, the other thing that's implied here is that falsehood is part of the old self. It is the way of life for the old self. It's not, it's not something that some people are affected by and other people aren't affected by. The fact of the matter is that apart from Christ, you lie. If nothing else, you lie in the biggest way about God and your need for redemption. There's no escape from that. So what Paul told us back in verse 22 is that the old nature, our pre-conversion nature is corrupted because of desires and the thing that makes those desires bad is they come from deceit. That's the unbelieving heart. Now I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. 
What's bad is when our desire goes after the wrong things. And the reason desire goes after the wrong things is because our hearts are deceived about what's truly desirable. That is what I mean when I say the unbeliever is inherently and unavoidably lying about God and about themselves. The unbelieving heart thinks everything they are seeking in life apart from God is what is actually desirable. And yet the Bible commands us to find our delight in God alone. The psalmist writes, delight yourself in the Lord. So not delighting in the Lord is a characteristic of the old nature, of the old man, of the old self. So when Paul writes that the old nature is corrupt, he means in part that the old man is a liar. And if you're not a Christian, that is a description of your life. You are a liar. And that means that the corruption of lying comes from the desires of deceit. In other words, the reason we lie is because we have desires that we shouldn't have. And the reason we have them is because we are deceived about what is truly desirable. I hope that's coming together and making sense to you. Something else I want to mention here is very important to help us clarify the magnitude of what the Bible is commanding. A good paraphrase of verse 25 is this. Finish with lying. Put it away in all its forms forever. Replace it with the truth. Every believer is to speak only truth to every person he meets. And inevitably, we want in our hearts and in our minds to justify some kinds of lies. To say, that means every kind of lie, except in certain cases. But lying, as defined by the ninth commandment, as it's laid out for us here in verse 25, is speaking untruthfully with the intention of misleading or deceiving in any form whatsoever. Any words that we speak which set out to convey a false assumption are lies. So that could be our exaggerating something. That could be telling half of the truth. That could be what we've come accustomed to calling white lies. They're pretty mainstream, a way of dealing with people in a polite manner to avoid awkward or difficult or hurtful conversations. It even includes the use of clever but unsound reasoning. But a lie is a lie, no matter how big or seemingly insignificant. C.S. Lewis wrote, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. It doesn't take long before everybody knows. (laughs) Now, in saying this, I know I can't get off too easily. We have too many... Bible scholars in our church, so I want to address the question that I know someone is thinking right now. What about the Hebrew midwives in Egypt, and what about Rahab with the spies? I've actually thought about this a lot over the years, and I know there are different opinions about what the right answer is here. I think um, I've been compelled by what I'm going to share. I haven't found a formidable response that convinces me otherwise. If you're not familiar with what I'm alluding to, there are two instances in Scripture uh, where we see people telling apparent lies and in the same breath, those people are commended in some way. Now, the first instance is in Exodus chapter 1. 
And Pharaoh, remember, is concerned that the, is, the Israelite people, their, their people, are growing too quickly in number. So he's concerned that their nation, Egypt, was going to be taken over by too many Israelites. So his solution was he called these Hebrew midwives into himself and he told them to kill every boy that was born. Exodus 1.16 says, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And then we see their response to that in verse 17. It says, The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So far, so good. No problem. In verse 18, Pharaoh asks why they did this. And then in verse 19, they respond, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and are delivered before the midwives come to them. They had their baby in the car on the way to the hospital. (laughs) Now, some have tried to argue that perhaps these ladies were telling the truth altogether, so there was nothing of a lie here, but that's just being dishonest with the text. There's no way that this was the case 100% of the time. Even if it were true a few times, even a majority of the time, Their clear intention was to lead Pharaoh to believe a falsehood, namely that the midwives were doing their best to obey him. We really want to do what you're telling us to do, but they just weren't fast enough. They couldn't get there in time to make sure those boys weren't kept alive. Now, why would anyone say what they did in deceiving Pharaoh was appropriate and a legitimate use of a lie? Because verse 20 says... God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So they are not rebuked. They are blessed. And perhaps, perhaps the ends are justifying the means here. Keep that instance in mind. The second is in Joshua chapter 2. Remember, Joshua sends two men out to spy on the city of Jericho, and the king found out he was being spied on, so they hid in Rahab's house. Remember, Rahab was a harlot, and she took the spies onto her roof. She covered them with with stalks of flax. And when the king's messengers showed up at Rahab's house to inquire about the men, she says in Joshua 2, 4 and 5, True, men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was closed at dark, the men went out. And where the men went out, I do not know. So she clearly, blatantly, outrightly lied. And then the rest of the chapter tells how she believed in the God of Israel. She pleaded for the deliverance of her family when Jericho was attacked. And then we see in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. So the biblical interpretation of her action was that it was done from a heart of faith, even though she lied to the king's messengers. The first thing I think we can notice right away in both of these instances is that they are involving the preservation of someone else's life. 
And there are other historical instances of similar situations, like there are many stories of Germans who lied to the Nazis about the whereabouts of Jews when they were actually hiding them in their homes. So there's a connection here between preserving life as the end and the means to do so is lying. But just as important as what the text does tell us is also what the text does not tell us. Nowhere in Exodus chapter 1 or in Joshua chapter 2 or in Hebrews chapter 11 does the text tell us that their lying was justified or acceptable, does it? In fact, I really believe the the text conveys to us that the Hebrew midwives and Rahab were all acting in faith and fear of the Lord. They felt compelled to lie to preserve life out of a heart of faith. But they were making a quick decision that they thought was right. But here's what we have to keep in mind. In neither of these instances, nor anywhere else in Scripture, does the Bible commend or approve lying itself. Yes, we are commanded to preserve life. But we cannot, we must not, pit the laws of God against one another. To say, if I'm going to preserve life, then I should be also allowed to lie in order to do so. Now think about the text. What were the midwives praised for? Fearing the Lord and not killing babies. What is Rahab commended for? Her faith and giving friendly welcome to the spies. That's all the text says. What are they not commended for? Lying. So here's where I land on the issue of whether or not there's ever an appropriate time to lie. While there may be very understandable circumstances wherein lying seems appropriate, the lack of commendation or principle in Scripture of its appropriateness should lead us to choose either to be silent or to tell the truth over and again saying anything that is false. In the end, I'd much rather lose my life for telling the truth than save it and be known as a liar. Either stand on truth or go see Jesus or stick around on the basis of a lie. Now, as Christian people created in the image of God, being conformed day by day more and more into the image of Christ, our speech should be taken up with what is true, what is genuine, what is actual, what is factual. That may sometimes put us in some very difficult circumstances. That makes us uncomfortable. It may even put us at great risk. But we are ambassadors of the one who never told a lie. And in the end, he was nailed to a cross because of the truth. As commendable as the actions of the midwives and Rahab seem, we should take this in consideration and thank God for his mercy when we make the wrong decisions on matters like this. But Christian living means that we will put away falsehood. It will be far from us. Now, what's the correlated idea here? Our second point. Living as a Christian means we speak the truth with our neighbor. Not only do I put away falsehood, but what I say is truthful. This is continuing with Paul's theme in earlier verses. 
putting off falsehood, putting on speaking the truth with our neighbor. What does that mean? First and foremost, it means that we are using dependable words. Remember, again, we've tied this back to verse 22. So telling the truth means we aren't deceitful, but we are dependable. And there are really two important parts to this. The first is that whatever I say ought to be truthful. If I'm going to say something, anything at all, I ought first to examine the words of my mouth and ensure that as far as I know, what I'm saying is true. And if I don't know or if I'm unclear, I need to be honest about that. But the second aspect of this is probably where we are less inclined to speak the truth with our neighbor. I am not speaking the truth when I sit and listen to someone talk to me with a continued refrain of falsehood without ever bringing truth and correction to the conversation. And that's a bit difficult, isn't it? If someone is telling us something directly, we know to be false, but we don't say anything about it, how is our silence interpreted? Usually as agreement and approval of what is being said. That's not speaking the truth. It's actually cowardice. There are other ways in which we fail at this as well. And one in particular that I can think of in churches is often that we fail to talk to one another about issues of character or sin patterns that we see because we don't want to deal with the discomfort or difficulty of the conversation. So we are either silent about it Or you come to me and ask me if I'll say something to the person. (laughs) But that's the very kind of falsehood that we're told to put off. And and putting on truth-telling is going to our brothers and sisters and telling them, you know what, I'm, I'm seeing something in your life and I am concerned about it. Can we talk about it? There's certainly a right way and a wrong way to do that. We need to be very aware of what the right way is. But how often are we prone to just avoid it altogether? And let me take this a step further. Our truth-telling needs to be clear. Not kind of, sort of, maybe, hopefully getting to the point. I'm going to drop a few hints here and there. Somebody may or may not pick up on it. If I have something to say in truth, check your heart. Clear the log from your eye, approach the person in love and grace, and say it. You know, we try to protect ourselves and our reputations by never saying anything negative or that can be perceived as critical. But what we're actually doing is making other people cynical about us. Think about that. And usually, if if what we're known for And if we really examine what we're saying, we're not only saying what's true, but we probably have some kind of polite lies in our regular speech, even as Christians. Oh, I'd really love to come to your event. I love one-year-old birthday parties, but I'm just not going to be able to make it. But next time, please don't forget to invite me. I want to be there. Now, that might be true, But more often than not, it's cowardice and it's an unwillingness to tell the truth. And you think you're helping, but you're actually leading others to not value your opinion or your words at all because they know you're never going to say anything but something very positive. 
when I was in high school, there was a guy on my soccer team that agreed with everything that everyone said, no matter what. So a few of us concluded that we were going to um, say very conflicting things 10 minutes apart from one another to see if we can get him to agree with both of us. And sure enough, he was all nods and yeahs and totallys for each of us. And three or four of us did that. And then later we asked him who he agreed with and he did not know what to say. There's no conviction there. There's, there's not truth. There's only deception. There's only a desire to be in everyone's good graces. But the way into a person's good graces is to love them enough to speak truth to them. Even if in the moment, at the time, they don't want you to tell them the truth. But to be a person of truth means you're a person of integrity. And that word integrity comes from the word integer. This is the extent of my math knowledge, so don't be impressed. The word integer means a whole number versus a fraction. In order for a person to be a person of truth, a person of integrity means you are the same. You're not dividing yourself out in different ways in different places. It means you're not a hypocrite. There is something of a simplicity about you. There's a sincerity about you. You're not different with one crowd than you are with another. And if you are different with one crowd versus another, if you're different in public than in private, if you're different when you're in another town versus when you're at home or when you're at work versus when you're at church, you're not a person of integrity. You're not a truth teller by your words and by your actions. There's no consistency of behavior. And as a person of the truth, we, we also need to know that not only are our words dependable, not only is our behavior consistent, but that we keep our promises. You follow through. G.K. Chesterton said to make a promise is to make an appointment with yourself in the future. If you make a promise to your spouse, when you make a vow to be married, you're saying three years from now, 30 years from now, I will be there for you. I will not be controlled by you. I will not be controlled by me. I will be controlled by the vow that I am making. The only way for you to keep from being controlled by your uncertain future is through promising and letting your yes be yes. There was a man named Thomas More who was burned at the stake because he was a professing Christian. And at one point... Once he was sentenced to death, prior to all of that happening, his daughter Meg came to him and pled with him, just wanting him to sign a statement, recanting everything to save himself, saying, Daddy, even if you don't believe it, just do it to save your life. And he said to his daughter Meg, when a man makes a promise, he holds himself in his hand, and if he opens his hand, he loses himself completely. Brothers and sisters, to keep your promise is a mark of God and a mark that you are a child of God. God is faithful. And once God promises something, he follows through. And this is where our hope lies with God, isn't it? If God were not truthful in his promises, if God did not follow through with what he says he would do, we would have no hope. We'd have no assurance that when I die, I get to be with Christ. But time and time and time again, God has proven himself to be a covenant-keeping God no matter what, no matter the cost to himself. 
what he says is true. And it's not just proven by his words, but by his actions. So if you've trusted in Christ, if your life is spent hoping in Christ, living upon Christ, walking with Christ, you can be certain that all that he has promised you will be yours because he is truthful, he is unwavering in the truth, even to the full extent of giving his life that it may come to pass. And if we are like Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ, we're putting off the old self, we're putting on the new self, we will fulfill all of our promises. That is speaking the truth with our neighbor. Our yes is yes, our no is no. There ought to be no such thing as an undependable Christian. Remember who God is. And the only way anything happens to you in the Christian life, remember who God is. Don't be a stoic. Don't just say, I'm going to tell the truth because it's right to tell the truth. Well, that's true. But say, I'm going to tell the truth because I know God is all-powerful. So I don't have to be untruthful to defend myself. He can defend me. I know God is all-knowing. I can't hide from him. He he sees everything I'm doing. I know God is all loving, and so he accepts me in Jesus Christ, and I don't have to be something other than who I am because I'm already accepted. I don't need to lie to you. I don't need to deceive you because my acceptance, my identity doesn't come from you. It comes from Christ alone. And in that, God has opened himself to you. He opened up. And the reason we don't like to be honest is because it opens us up to be vulnerable. But Jesus was vulnerable to you. He was open. So be open. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are to put off falsehood and speak truthfully with one another as we follow the one who is truth embodied. Well, very quickly, lastly, living as a Christian means understanding that truth is essential when we are a small part in a big body. Falsehood breaks community. It's the end of a relationship in many ways. That's why Paul says to speak the truth, for we are all members of one body. You see that at the end of verse 25. That means if you don't speak the truth you might as well not be members of one another. There can be no relationship. There can be no fellowship. You have to speak the truth. He's dealing specifically here with the local church, continuing his previous arguments in chapters 3 and 4. So out of all the relationships Paul could have focused on here, he chooses to admonish us to tell the truth to our fellow Christians because we are all members of one body and therefore members of each other. Here's what he means by that. Simple principle and then we'll be done. If the, body is, if the body's eating with a fork... And the eye lies to the hand about where the mouth is, the eye is going to get stabbed with a fork. That's the, that's the illustration, that's the principle that Paul is giving to us. Your body parts don't lie to one another about what they are, what their function is. So when you aren't speaking the truth with your fellow believer, where there is dishonesty within the church, you're not just deceiving fellow believers. But you're also deceiving yourself because the body is bound together as one body. 
I hope that makes sense. So I'm, I'm, I'm not just hurting you when I seek to deceive or lie to you. I'm hurting myself if I'm lying to you because I'm hurting the church and the church is one body. Later on, Paul's going to say in chapter 5, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Do you think of the church as your own flesh? When you bring harm upon your own body, you're acting contrary to nature in a way that is inherently self-destructive. And, and when you mislead other believers, you're lying to the body. The truth concerning the body of Christ hasn't renewed your mind yet. You aren't seeing yourself as a part of the body when you deceive the body. Because if you did, you wouldn't be harming the body in the ways you are if you are deceitful. But when the truth concerning the reality of the body of Christ and your part in the body of Christ really hits home and you believe it, the spirit of your mind will be transformed in how you act toward other believers and all other people. When the truth of the body of Christ renews the spirit of your mind, you will no more intentionally lie to a brother or sister in Christ than you would intentionally close your eyes when you're pushing a piece of wood through a table saw. You would never do that. It's foolishness. Brothers and sisters, we are bound together with Jesus as his body. And so we are commanded to put away all falsehood, to speak the truth to our neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is our new nature, the creation of God in true righteousness and holiness. And may we be known as a people of truth as we seek to be more faithful in Christian living for the glory of Christ and the purposes of his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we thank you that you are truth, (coughs) that Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And we're reminded again that we are told there's no way to you but through him. And so we recognize in order for us to even begin to apply anything we've heard this morning, our greatest need is to be in Christ. If we are to be a truthful people, putting off falsehood and speaking the truth to our neighbors, bound together as one body in Christ, we need new natures than what we were born with. We need to put off the old self that the new self might be put on. We need to be walking with Christ faithfully, joyfully, obediently. I pray, God, that this week as we think upon your word, that you would bring to mind your scriptures and bring conviction where there is falsehood in our lives. That you would help us to be confident in our identity in Christ. That we need not fear man We are in Christ. The worst man can do to us is to take our lives. And from there on, we might be with Jesus. And so, Father, help us to walk confidently and boldly through this life, speaking the truth, no matter the outcome. That we might do so in humility, in love, with patience, and with joy, and ultimately with the great desire of bringing glory to you. And we ask all of these things, Father, knowing that the only way they happen is that you are at work in our lives, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. And so we pray, Father, that you 
would do this work for us and for any who are apart from Christ this morning, that you might be pleased to give them new life, that they too might walk in the truth as they speak and as they act. Father, help us to know and respond appropriately to all that is right and true according to your word and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.